0: Welcome to This Endo Life, episode 26. I'm Jessica Duffin, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. So, hey, yeah, I know. It's been a while, hasn't it? Um, Gosh. Uh, If I go into everything that's happened since we last hung out, um, I don't know, I don't think it sounds kind of unbelievable but we've had like a a series of really really um bad luck like really really bad luck and um on top of it all chris's dad passed away um in january so um yeah it's been a really tough time and um since july i've been trying to get this season out into the world July last year of course um and i've had to cancel it and reschedule it over and over again because it's it's physically been impossible to record um so i am really really sorry for the delay um i'm so glad you're listening and you've waited around and i'm really sorry that it's taken this taken this long and i'm just so happy to be back and finally doing this And, yeah, having you guys here to listen and be a part of it. So, thank you so much for your patience and for hanging around. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm trying a new method. I am doing quite a lot of batch recording. So... Kind of a few, like... Weird disclaimers, things to note. I've got... um, retainers if you watch my Instagram stories you're going to know this because I keep being like I've got retainers and I can't speak properly I'm really struggling with them if anyone else has retainers can you just dm me or something and tell me how you coped because I honestly struggle pronouncing words and my mouth gets so tired that I mean you'll hear it so I've been batch recording got my retainers out today because um well not today just just whilst I'm recording this intro um, because I just can't hack it anymore. But you'll notice on some of them, when I'm interviewing guests, or, um, you know, recording the intros, the beginnings, um, my my speech might sound a bit different from normal, because I am struggling with it, my mouth is getting really tired. So um, yeah, just kind of letting you know. Um, I think it's fine that I'm speaking like slightly differently I just thought I'd let you know because it might be weird to suddenly Yeah, I don't know how it's going to sound basically um, On the other end of things So today I'm talking to Lisa Hendrickson-Jack She's the host of the Fertility Friday podcast If you don't listen, you totally should because you guys are going to love it um, she's a fertility awareness educator, holistic reproductive health practitioner and author of newly released book The Fifth Vital Sign. Before I get started though I want to thank my sponsors, yes I have sponsors now this season, Um, pretty happy about that. So my first sponsors are BU Period Patches, these guys are honestly like always always part of my um go-to period pack um unfortunately i ran out and came on early literally this week um actually today i'm on the last day of my period and the majority of these episodes you're going to be listening to over the next couple of days were recorded on my first day i didn't know i was I, i was early so it'd be really interesting if you can hear like a slight brain frog going on in my brain pain worse I was cool like I've got that under control but I was definitely fuzzy headed so you might have noticed that anyway um my BU period patches are always part of my kind of toolkit um so I use a magnesium spray usually a sensitive one because my skin gets a little bit itchy otherwise um forage botanicals moon belly balm I think it's called magnesium supplements Um, I pop one of those once my period starts and that helps relax the muscles. And the BU period patches. These are made from 100% natural essential oils and they soothe cramps naturally and therefore reduce pain. They are like um, plasters really, like long plasters that go across your like abdomen and your back wherever you've got pain. And they're really discreet, they're super thin so they're not like bulky, it's not like wearing... Like sometimes if I wear a tens machine it's really annoying because of the wires and blah 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 and the little I don't know what you call it, little controls falls off and yeah. And then someone's like, Oh, you dropped your stepper thing, and I'm like, Oh yeah, thanks. It's actually my tens machine. Um anyway, you can get five patches per pack. Well not can, you do get five patches per pack. Um they're six ninety nine if you buy them uh for like once off or 4 99 when you subscribe. To shop just head to the link in my show notes and you can start soothing period cramps the natural way. My second sponsor today is the Know Your Endo course, The Endo Toolkit by the lovely Jessica Minan. Um, Jessica Minan was a previous guest on the podcast like twice actually I think. She's an incredible support for the endometriosis community. Um, she went from not being able to get to out of bed, not wanting to wake up at all actually, needing a hysterectomy um, with stage 4 endo to live in a normal life with endometriosis and actually cancelling her surgery. Her five-week program now teaches you the tools to help you manage endometriosis. This isn't a cure, we know there isn't a cure, but it's about equipping you with the knowledge and the power to feel fertile 20 30%, 50% better every single day. Enrollment opens March 11th to the 17th, and that's for the early bird pricing. And then March 18th to the 24th for the regular pricing. And because you guys listen to this show, and because I've been away for way too long, and I'm sorry, you get $15 off early bird and standard pricing with code JESSICA in all caps. So that's JESSICA, J-E-S-S-I-C-A, just head to knowyourendo.com forward slash program, P-R-O-G-R-A-M, um, so that's spelt the American way, um, and add your code at checkout. Also, if you're around this Friday, I am holding a dinner party um, in support of Endometriosis UK. Um, some of you will know that I freelance, uh, consult essentially for Endometriosis UK and I used to be a full-time member of staff there. They are a really tiny charity. They are doing massive work. Um if you don't know yet, we were successful in getting menstrual wellbeing taught in um schools, primary school and secondary school. That's gonna be commencing from 2020 and we have been campaigning that for a very, very long time and we are a tiny team. This is huge news. Um Young people are going to actually know what endometriosis is. They're going to know what's normal for a period and what's not. They're going to know what the signs of something going on is. It's massive. So, you know, I really want to support them doing this fundraiser. Um, it's Know Your uh, know your Endo. No, it's not Know Your Endo. It's Endo the Night. Um, so this is their annual fundraiser every March um, where you get to hold your own party. And mine is a dinner party in collaboration with my lovely friend Lauren Lovett at her plant academy um she's a plant-based chef and we are doing an anti-inflammatory endo-friendly um banquet um which includes gluten-free bread and vegan cheese i literally cannot wait and non-alcoholic prosecco i don't know what else you could want except for maybe low sugar unrefined made with unrefined sugar chocolate cheesecake bites which you get at the end and you get goodie bags so it's going to be a really lovely night please come along I'd love to meet you guys in person I get so many emails and dms and it would just be really nice to meet people in person and support endometriosis uk get together on endometriosis awareness week and international women's day yeah it's just going to be a really really nice night so I'd love to see if you can come the link to the tickets are in um in the show notes and um yeah It'll be great to see you there. Let me know if you're coming. So, now, back to Lisa. So, as I was saying, today's show is with Lisa Hendricks and Jack. Since a teenager, Lisa used the pill to cope with incredibly heavy bleeding and excruciating period pain. At 18, she decided to come off the pill, address these problems, like head on, and finally understand what the hell was going on with her menstrual cycle. This led her down a path which eventually led her to train in fertility into yeah, infertility awareness methods which are practices that allow you to track your menstrual cycle naturally and navigate your fertile windows um, you don't have to be trying to get pregnant it's just it's kind of another form of contraception and understanding what's going on with your menstrual cycle so you can kind of know your moods where your hormones are at like why you're a bit fuzzy or why you're completely on point that day um so anyway through her book podcast and course and blog, Lisa teaches people with periods how to chart their menstrual cycles naturally and if they'd like to come off um, hormone and birth control completely, she helps them do that. This is a disclaimer, this um, interview isn't about pill bashing or bashing anyone who is taking a pill, it's about delivering the facts that are often whether directly or indirectly, hidden from us. It's about providing you guys with the truth about the side effects of the pill, how to manage those. We do talk about if you want to stay on the pill, like how to do that in a healthy way and support your body. Um, Every person has the choice to take the pill or any contraception that they'd like, but we believe it should be an informed choice. So um, this episode is about giving you the information on that. It's not an episode on how to take the pill to manage endometriosis um I don't really deal with the medical side of things I deal with like the holistic side of things so this does lean more towards like if you want to come off the pill or if you want to like support your body whilst you're taking the pill um that's more about that kind of stuff so yeah Lisa and I are not bashing the pill it's about giving you guys all of the information and knowledge that you so rightly deserve in order to make an informed choice and manage endometriosis in the way that you want and the way that suits your body. So, in this episode, Lisa drops some incredible truth bombs, like my jaw was hitting the table all the time. We discuss the side effects of birth control and the risks of using hormonal birth control to mask endometriosis symptoms without actually getting to the root of the problem. Um, We also talk about like, Stopping taking birth control and like how to manage the kind of fallout of that. Um, Treating endometriosis without birth control. And finally, why we really need to start seeing the menstrual cycle as our fifth vital sign to enhance our health and well-being. Lisa's research and knowledge is next level. It's completely incredible. I was astounded, angry, shocked, um, but I was also left empowered and educated I'm so glad she came on the show and I really think you'll be as well. Um, I really hope you enjoy it and get lots of information from this because it's it's packed. Oh PS before I forget as it's endometriosis awareness week and I've been absent for so long I am releasing an episode every single day Monday to Friday this week so yeah stay tuned and I hope you enjoy them all. So um I wanted to start with a bit about yourself and your journey. Um, you obviously run Fertility Friday, and you have the Fertility Friday podcast. Um, but I'm just so interested in people's stories and their personal journey to where they are now. So, yeah, I'd love to hear yours. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I
1: think my my story is. Um, I think it's interesting because I discovered fertility awareness when I was quite young, and so it's hard for me to remember the exact you know, age and date, because it was so long ago. But um, somewhere between age, say, 18 and 19, I discovered fertility awareness. And so in my case, I went from my very first period from the very first time I, I menstruated, it was uh, painful and heavy. And so my experience of menstruation was kind of rough. I mean, um, it just even from the start. So I got my first period when I was 14 and I was a really, really active <laughs> young lady. Um, you know, I did ballet and it's really inconvenient to try to figure out how to sort your period out when you're wearing like a leotard. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> <laughs> I had one pretty embarrassing experience when I was trying, you know, to figure, to figure that stuff out. Um, and, you know, I did track and field and I played basketball and I played volleyball. Oh God, and I was so
0: sporty. I felt so bad.
1: I was <laughs> super sporty, yeah. So it was, it was really hard for me um, to kind of figure that out. And more so because it's just, um, there was a period of time before I was comfortable using tampons. And so having just to be in all these sports situations is is, is pretty tough. Um, before, you know, this these are before the days of the menstrual cup and knowing how to handle all of this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, And also the pain was really bad. So I would get my period and I would just be like on the floor for, you know, the first couple of days because it was that bad. And uh, so, you know, as a young lady, the only thing I knew what to do is to go to the doctor and basically like ask him to put me on the pill. And really, it only took like less than 30 seconds of me talking and he was already writing the script. So from from the time I was young, I, I, I and I did that intentionally because that was the only way I knew how to manage it. Um, young women are very industrious, right, so we get the solutions that we need and now that, that allowed me to kind of figure out my sports and to just you know not have these really hard periods. but in retrospect, when I look back at some of the emotions you know that I was feeling, like some of the anxiety and the depression and Um, I had migraines and the only ever, the only time in my life I've ever had migraines was basically when I was on the pill. So looking back, there was, I, I feel like I, at the time I had no idea, but looking back, I think that I did experience some side effects, but how would I have known? No one told me. Um, so because I was using the pill for all of these other reasons, like I specifically was just using it to make my periods lighter and to make my pain less. So, um, I never took it at the right time. Like I was not taking it for birth control, and when I eventually needed birth control, um, I was—I just didn't feel like I could trust it. I had come off the pill a bunch of times um, just to see if it did anything to my cycles, and every time I would come off of it, my cycles would be just the, like my periods would be just as bad, even worse, <laughs> more right, painful, yeah. more heavy. Um, so I kind of knew that. Uh, First of all, that it wasn't actually doing anything to, to the problem, I kind of gathered that. Um, and also, I had read the package, and I kind of knew that if I was having sex and if I was on this pill, I would always be scared that I might be pregnant because I'm just not the girl that's gonna, you know, get take it at eight o'clock every day type of thing. <laughs> um, so. At, at one point, and also I, it was on my radar, like a, a lot of women in my family had had various fertility or kind of reproductive health challenges from fibroids to recurrent miscarriages to all this stuff. And I just kind of felt like, okay, it's not fixing anything. I don't know what the problem is. I don't want to have a hysterectomy. Uh, my mom had a hysterectomy, um, you know, when I was youngish, I think I was probably under 10 or something. And I, it, it was a very, uh, that experience always stood out to me because, um, And then my auntie came to stay with us and then she had had one too. And there's all these women in my family that basically had fibroids and the periods were so heavy that eventually the doctors were just like, well, let's just take it out. And I just didn't want that to be me. So I was, you know, this is one thing I always like to share this part of my story because I was like, you know, 17, 18, 19, when I had these complex thought processes, Mm, young women are capable of having, right? Like young women are capable of, of, you know, um, uh, critical thinking that these were the things that i was thinking about when i was trying to figure out what type of birth control to use and so i came to the conclusion that i didn't want to be on the pill because i i just i knew i wanted to k- kids someday like that day was like way in advance but i knew i wanted them someday and i felt like i already had some genetic possibly stuff going on and i didn't want to do anything to make it worse <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> And then also, I figured to myself, okay, so I don't, I know that I'm not the greatest candidate for the pill. And so, therefore, I'm always going to be scared and terrified that I'm going to be pregnant. So, I may as well just use the condom because then at least I know, like, if the condom breaks at that time, then I know that I should be afraid. <laughs> that was my level of understanding. <laughs> Other yeah. than just having, sex, like, having no idea of what was going on, that's how I felt. So, it was around that time that I discovered fertility awareness. And that was amazing because all of a sudden, I I learned that there was only a small window of my my cycle where I could actually get pregnant and I could actually learn how to tell when that was. And so that gave me like the control that I wanted. And that made me, me feel very comfortable. I felt much more comfortable off the pill, being able to identify when I'm fertile, being able to manage that with condoms or, you know, that was how I was managing it at that time. Like... The, or not having sex at all, but being very, like, aware of that and then knowing that if something did happen, if the condom broke at that time, then, okay, then I would need the morning after. Like, I felt more um, in control with that, um, in that perspective. So um, that was all happening when I was, like, 19.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> it
1: was, like, nearly 20 years ago. And so, I mean, I just, I think that it was just meant to be. I, this I all think happened. So. It coffee. feels
0: like it. <laughs> It just really, hearing yeah. your story really sounds like you were destined to do this kind of work.
1: Yeah, because I mean, it's just so most women just don't have this experience. And so I was on my university campus. Um, I discovered fertility awareness at a talk. Um, this woman, Inga Mucio, wrote the book Cunt. Um, and it had just come out. I didn't realize that. But she came to our university and she was, t- you know, reading some excerpts from the book. And, you know, she said something in her book about how you could basically tell when you're fertile and your cervix changes around ovulation. And that was what I just dis- that, like. That was the first time I was exposed to that. And so that started my journey. I, you know, bought Taking Charge of Your Fertility. And it just so happens that on my university campus, there was a group of women, some of whom were actual um, certified fertility awareness uh, educators who led like a monthly group that still meets to this day in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, um, the Fertility Awareness Charting Circle. Um, And so I was actually attending these monthly meetings. And in no time, I was like part of the meetings. And in no time, I was teaching and then we did a fertility awareness training program so this was all happening kind of early 2000s and i mean that that's that's where it all started
0: can i ask because i'm really i'm really curious about the different avenues into this kind of work um and for anyone who is listening not just for themselves but because maybe they want to also help other women what what's the role of a fertility awareness educator and how would you get trained to do that
1: um, well, that's a really great question. I think that there, I mean, I think the first thing to to note is there's no, there's no one quote fertility awareness method. Um, there's a variety of fertility awareness based methods. And so there's some that are quite specific. So I trained in the Justice method specifically. And so that's a particular method. It's symptothermal, meaning that you're trained to chart mucus and temperature and cervical position. But there are a variety of different fertility awareness-based methods. Some teach mucus only. Some teach temperature only. Some teach the symptothermal method. Some use a fertility monitor to identify when your estrogen surges as you approach ovulation. So there's a variety of different ways to do this. And so if somebody wants to teach, then I I suppose the first thing to do would be to kind of figure out like, well, you know, what, (laughs) what method calls to you? uh, What, you know, what makes the most sense? Um, There's a history in fertility awareness in the community. I mean, there's a connection between natural family planning, which is essentially the same as fertility awareness from like a scientific standpoint, it's the same information. Uh, And there's a connection between that and the Catholic church. So historically, there was, there wasn't always a separation between the kind of Catholicism and this practice. And so, um, you know, typically, your average woman who found fertility awareness in a secular way is going to want to kind of find an organization who trains and there's not A million of them, but there are a few, and it depends on where you are in the world. So if you're in North America, I mean, Justice and Grace of the Moon are kind of like two of the um, secular... uh, places to learn fertility where they come to mind but there are a lot of different organizations that that do teach and so you may find different um you know organizations locally or different church organizations um or you might find you know depending on where you are like if i don't know off the top of my hand uh, head all of the organizations in europe and the different places in australia but there are different organizations like there's fertility UK. Um, So there's different organizations that do um, teach and and things like that. And so the role of a fertility awareness educator, um, I mean it it depends on your training. So for some educators, the training is very basic and really it's to you know teach you how to identify your fertile window so that you really understand if you're wanting to use the method for birth control, how to do that successfully. You know, the research shows that when you're trained by an instructor in a specific method. So there was a research study that was done on symptothermal. So again, that's tracking mucus. Your um, temperature and your cervical position. Uh, so when you, you know women who are trained by someone who's trained in a specific method of charting that, uh, the method itself is up to 99.4% effective in preventing pregnancy, which is great because yeah. it's right up there with all the hormonal birth control. Meaning it's just as effective if you know what you're doing. Um, so in the training that I did, I mean you learn about the the specifics of how to support women to chart, but um, we also learn about how the menstrual cycle is is a vital sign and how we can really uh, gauge and understand the connection between changes in your menstrual cycle and fluctuations with your health. And um, so in addition to teaching women how to chart, um, I'm able to support women to pick up any information that might be kind of coming up in their charts about their menstrual cycle and connect them to what that might imply about their overall health status.
0: So- just for anyone who's listening who's like really new to charting their cycle um so the type of fertility awareness that you do is sympto i can't remember the symptothermal so that would be um my friend teaches this in a course actually but i haven't i haven't revisited for ages so as you said you'll be measuring like you're feeling where your cervix is throughout the month um well so the, the
1: method that I teach cervical mucus would be the primary sign um because when so cervical mucus for anyone who may not be aware of it um you produce it as you approach ovulation and many women have experienced it but maybe didn't know what it was so it can look like creamy white hand lotion um and it can also look like clear, raw, stretchy egg whites. And for some women, you know, when they go to the bathroom, some women have noticed it where if you've ever had that feeling of like, oh my gosh, my period's here, um, because you can feel it. And then you go to the bathroom and there's no period. So that may be your mucus. And then other women have an experience where they see discharge. I remember being a teenage girl and actually starting to produce it. And I actually had no idea what it was. And I asked my mom and she was just like, well, just use a panty liner because she didn't. I'm sure she didn't really know what it was either, but -hmm. I can distinctly remember there was a period in my life where all of a sudden I felt wet sometimes down there, and it felt gross because I didn't know what it was.
0: Yeah, Um, I think so many girls are still having that (laughs) feeling. I really do. Like,
1: well, because we're making the mucus, you make the most mucus when you're young too, because you have the most uh, cervical crypts that produce that type of mucus. So, um, uh, for a lot of women, they end up in their doctor's office getting tested for STIs that are coming back negative, and you know, maybe even going on antibiotics for something that is not a problem (laughs) that is actually a perfectly normal. And So that would be the first sign. And cervical mucus is key to understanding your fertility because it's your mucus that allows sperm to survive inside of your body for up to five days as you approach ovulation. So really mucus and um, fertility your mucus is a sign that you are in your fertile window and when you have mucus if you have sex you can get pregnant because the mucus keeps the sperm alive you know until ovulation Um, and then the second sign is the basal body temperature so many women many women have kind of heard about that where it's like you take your temperature first thing in the morning before you get out of bed and if you plot it on a graph or enter it into a charting app after ovulation, your temperature actually rises and stays high, which is really interesting. Like the science brain in me would loved it because it was like, I can plot this on a graph and it changes <laughs> after I ovulate and it's like evidence of this amazing thing that's happening in my body that I had no idea about. And so, um, when you combine and then cervical position is an optional sign. So not every woman who uses fertility awareness will, you know, check her cervix every day, but your cervix changes around ovulation. It's typically higher and softer and you can feel that it's a bit open. Like you can kind of feel a little indent versus outside of that fertile window. It's typically lower and more firm and often in like a different position. And so, um, yeah, like that's the basis, understanding how to chart and interpret those, uh, three main signs is at the center center of it, the symptothermal, like all of the different symptothermal thermal methods. And the difference between methods is really how you track it, how you look for it, how you check it and all those types of things.
0: And how about, you know, so obviously you were saying that, um, you had really painful periods and, um, I think I'm right in saying that you were later diagnosed with fibroids. Is that correct?
1: I was. And so the painful periods, i I they, I don't believe that they were related to the fibroids because fibroids are fairly um, it, it, fibroids in a in a way are benign they're 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 to, quote unquote tumors um but they're not um malignant like they're not cancerous obviously uh, so um you know my understanding of fibroids is that they grow under the influence of estrogen um and really they they can be problematic depending on where they grow so some women may experience pain But it's not because fibroids, by nature, are painful. But it's because maybe that particular woman has them growing in a in a particular location. Right. Um, And then depending on where they are, uh, you know, I was concerned like, is this going to interfere with my ability to to get pregnant? And you know, what the doctors told me is, well, first of all, fibroids are really common, and uh, I believe that the majority of women have, by the time we kind of reach (laughs) menopause, the majority of women, I think, have um, not all women, but it's a pretty high percentage of women that do if you were to check every woman's uterus. Um, so it's, it's fairly common. Um, and, uh, you know, depending on where they are and how big they are, they don't necessarily interfere with fertility again, just depending on how big they are and where they are. Uh, but they can, and are very well associated with, um, increase like heavy bleeding because having something growing in your uterus <laughs> seems to increase the chances of you having heavy bleeding, and I don't know exactly the mechanism behind that. Um, But the pain itself, uh, looking back at how ridiculous my pain was, I would classify it as like a, you know, 9 or 10 out of 10. Um, And the reason is that now I have been through birth twice. And the first time I went through birth, I didn't know I was in labor all day long because I was like, no, this can't be labor. My period pain hurts more than this. Eventually it got to the point that it was more, but yeah, like I was fully in like active labor before the pain got to be as ridiculous as I used to have. Um, so looking back, I'm not sure if I may have had a touch of endometriosis. Like I, I don't, I'll never know. Right. But it was bad enough that it may like, when your pain is so bad that it feels like someone's, you know, pardon the TMI, but like someone, it felt like someone's reaching up my butt and squeezing as hard as yeah. possible. Yeah. That's how it felt. And like, and then like, it would just, they would squeeze and squeeze and squeeze for minutes. And then eventually it would kind of release and then it would squeeze and squeeze
0: mm, and squeeze again.
1: yeah. Like it felt like kind of like labor, except labor was so much better because labor, like you would have a contraction and it would like contract and then stop and you would get a break. So, ladies, what I'm saying is, like, the pain was worse than labor because at least with labor, you had, like, a minute to regroup yourself and prepare for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas these bloody period pains, they, like, they would last all day, right? These, these cramps would just last all day. And if I didn't take the drugs in the window, you know, the window, then you're just, like, hooped.
0: So when you had the – like, when you started doing the fertility awareness, um, did you – Did that help you manage your pain at all? Because I know we're obviously going to get into the pill later and um, kind of the idea of masking symptoms with the pill. And I know that's what you were concerned about. You were concerned that you were kind of ignoring something that was going on with your body. So was the fertility awareness just helpful for your contraception or, um, or as a contraceptive? Or was it also like helpful for you to kind of, I don't know, make some peace with your body and get to know what was going on with it
1: um yes it definitely it definitely helped I would say one thing I mean tracking your cycles just looking at it by itself doesn't solve if you have like an actual legit problem underneath but what it did in my case was it drew my attention to it so when I very first started tracking my cycles my cycles were long um, on average, they were between 40 and 45 days. And I remember reading, taking charge of your fertility and seeing how she showed like what a long cycle looked like and like a, you know, normal and then like a short one. And I just remember thinking, oh, cool. Like I just have long cycles. Like we don't, you know, 28 days is is just, you know, hogwash. You know what I mean? Like I kind of had a minute where I took it on as an identity, like I'm unique and I have 40 day cycles. Uh, But it didn't take, so in my case, what really made the difference is that I wasn't just charting by myself. Um, I could say I was self-taught, but really I was attending these monthly meetings with these amazing women who knew way more about, you know, fertility words than I did at the time. And so um, I remember my charting instructor, you know, she looked at my chart and she was like, uh, you know, Lisa, (laughs) you need to get these, you know, you need to get a, you know, you need to test your thyroid. Your temperatures are super low um, and your cycles are too long. And I remember being like, like what? Like it, it really, that was a, a kind of like, if you look back at moments that have changed your life, that was a moment that changed mine because I, someone looked at my menstrual cycle chart and basically, um, and then I did get the blood test and I ended up getting diagnosed with that thyroid issue. And then I ended up going on medication. And um, it, over time, it, for me, it was a journey. It wasn't like, I discovered all this stuff and then immediately all of my period problems were gone. Um, It took me years to figure out how to get my period, like how to get my pain down. Um, I tried, I feel like I tried everything. Um, You know, like I I tried all kinds of different stuff at the beginning because I didn't really know what was causing it, and why it was happening. Um, But, but what the charting did is it, 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 um, it kind of confirmed what I knew. Like I knew there was something wrong. I knew that I shouldn't be having all that pain and I knew that, you know, because the pill didn't touch it, I knew that like, I just felt like you shouldn't, you shouldn't actually feel that way. Like they, there should, you shouldn't, every time you have your period be on the floor in like intense pain. So there was like a deep intuitive part of myself that knew that that was wrong. And so over the years, what charting helped, like it did help to connect me with my body. And it was the first time I felt positive about my period. And I was very thankful that I had it. And even though I did have pain for a lot of years, um, I still was able to connect with it. And on an emotional level, it was always very cleansing to me to kind of have that moment where you're kind of like away from the world and you can kind of reflect. And I feel like over the years, that really helped me to just always stay focused on what was most important in my life. Um, so eventually, like nowadays, I don't have pain with my periods. Nowadays, my pain level is either at a zero or like a 0.5. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But that came after really understanding how, you know, diet and lifestyle factors as well as nutrient deficiencies impact the pain. So I believe in my case, it was a combination of the conventional meat, the dairy, um, the xenoestrogen exposure. You know, I think that I'm, I'm likely just quite sensitive to a lot of the chemicals. I'm a black woman. I used to straighten my hair and in case you in case you're not aware straightener is not like hair dye um straightener is like you put it on your skin and eventually bears a hole through it so that's a I, good point didn't think about it like that yeah yeah it's not the same i know a lot of women who's you know dye their hair but it's like that dye doesn't cause you to have chemical burns so i mean i had a, a lot of and i mean i was straightening my hair probably i don't i don't remember exactly it's hard to remember but maybe like 15 years old 16 like um a t- young teenager so and that's just one of the things, right? And uh, and I, all the dairy products. And I'm not anti-dairy by any means, but these days when I consume dairy, it comes from a farm, and it's not full of, you know, it's, it's just it's not from it's it's from animals that are eating grass and stuff. Like it's just like so now. Yeah, I have and to they're not pumped it. with hormones. That's right. Yeah. So and then the meat that I source for my family, you know, not it's 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 not there's no hormones in that and all that. So I feel like. Um, Uh, just throughout the years, I really realized like I reduced my, I used to use all the lotions from the store and all the bath and body wash and all the, all of the things that contain all of the endocrine disrupting chemicals. As a woman with fibroids, as I learned about fibroids and I learned that, you know, having more estrogen relative to progesterone can contribute to those getting worse and contribute to them growing. I've, over the past, you know, 15 years or so, um, part of my process has been to reduce my exposure to artificial chemicals and hormones overall. So I can't tell you, like, this one thing I did got rid of all the pain, but I can tell you that the the combination of all of these very specific, like, getting rid of all the xenochemicals really just... reducing my exposure to all of that, like stopping having that additional burden on my liver to have to get rid of all of that stuff all the time and modifying my diet, eating less sugar, eating less, um, like being careful about the meat choices and the dairy choices and all of those things. I know when I eat a ton of regular dairy, I'm more likely to have pain. So these are connections that I made later on. Um, And I also know that supporting my body with magnesium and zinc and fish oil, anti-inflammatory compounds specifically, um, improve like it's night and day. Compared, I wish I would have known this when I was sixteen.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I wish I knew this years ago. So, you mentioned earlier about um the menstrual cycle as the fifth vital sign, and how like fertility awareness um helped you kind of understand that what what you were experiencing in your body wasn't right, something was wrong. Um, so you have a new book called The Fifth Vital Sign. Um, So it'd be really good to understand a bit more about like, why we should be looking at the menstrual cycle as another vital sign and what the use is of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, when I shared the experience of my charting instructor looking at my chart and seeing some abnormalities and then basically telling me like, you know, these are the tests that you should have because these signs are congruent with this problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's a wonderful example of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, right? Because it blew my mind. I mean, the only reason that my thyroid, my kind of subclinical, it was very, very subclinical. I mean, I wasn't like 80 pounds overweight and super depressed. Like this was identified at such a subclinical level that no one would have tested me for it. (laughs) I didn't have like outrageous symptoms.
0: Yeah. And that's what they want to see. That's why like endo can be so hard to diagnose because they want really obvious symptoms, but it's not always like that. You know, Mm
1: -hmm. I went to an endocrinologist once and she was like, why are you here? because she like, literally, it was a really weird experience. But (laughs) because I mean, I've had this thyroid thing, it's kind of followed me for all these years, it's under control. And, um, you know, I've supported my body in a number of ways. And so I'm I'm thankful that I was able to kind of, you know, keep it all in check and have healthy cycles and have, um, like, avoid a lot of the things that can happen if you have a thyroid issue, and and it's not managed, and you don't know about it. Uh, But again, it's what you said, like, medical especially specialists they see the the sickest people like they're seeing people that are like it's it's been there for so long no one identified it early and you know now they it is this horrible like exacerbated thing um so to take it back to this idea of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign i mean the reason that I wrote the book, it's the same reason that I started the podcast and the same reason that I've been teaching women for all these years. And it's really because even though in my case, like almost 20 years have passed um, I discovered this a long time ago, but your average woman still has no idea because our education system doesn't teach us how our bodies work. And so, you know, one of my, um, like the book was an ambitious project because I didn't just want it to be an opinion piece. Like I didn't just want it to be me being like, and eh, this is what I think, because I think so. Uh, so, just, so I spent a you know, a ridiculous amount of time researching, you know, there's over a thousand, you know, references in, in the back of the book to kind of oh back gosh. up. Sections. Yeah. So it was like the reason I, well, I mean, there's a few reasons why I did that. I mean, one reason I did that is because I wanted to create a resource where women can feel really comfortable and confident. Um, For any woman who's listening who has used fertility awareness uh, or who wants to, if you ever bring it to your doctor, I mean, it depends on your doctor. Some doctors are amazing and they're aware of it. But many practitioners, um, you know, are taught that it's not effective and that it's basically like, it's just a countdown until you conceive if you're wanting to use it for birth control. And so as women, I feel like we need to have those resources that lend credence to like, this is actually a real thing. It's legit. There's science behind it. It's not somebody's, you know, dream or whatever about this stuff. There's years and years of solid science behind um, fertility awareness that, that has never really been put out in the open in the way that I'm doing in the book. And so that was a big part of it. Um, But to take it back to the, the whole vital sign piece, I mean, The most commonly accepted vital signs that we know and love are uh, our body temperature, our heart rate, our respiratory rate, and our blood pressure. And so all of us have that general understanding. We all know that there is a normal accepted range for all of those vital signs. And if we were to go into our doctor's office, they're going to check the vitals. And if there's anything off, then the doctor immediately knows. In a real, it's a real-time measure, so the doctor would immediately know. Okay, this is out of the normal range, and if it's out of the normal range, it could be these. It could be for these reasons. And so, it, in a way, it gives the doctor a roadmap so that when they're starting to look for what could be wrong, they already have a general sense of what could be causing that vital sign to be out of alignment. And I mean, if you think about your temperature, well, that's the easiest, <laughs> that's the low hanging fruit example. Like if you have a fever, the doctor knows it's got to be something and it's likely either like an infection or like something like that. And then the question is like, where is the infection, right? Um, and so in the very same way, your menstrual cycle, there's a normal accepted set of parameters of what's uh, what's healthy. And it's beyond the length. I think as women, we're only taught about the length. So it's like, oh, the cycle has to be 28 days, but and ovulation has to be on day 14, right? Which isn't actually true. Um, but We typically think it's just that. But to give you an example, if I were to look at a woman's menstrual cycle chart, because I, you know, spend years training in this stuff and working with women, I'm going to look at the length and a healthy cycle would fall somewhere between 24 to 35 days, somewhere in there. And you notice I didn't say 28 because some variation is normal. And, um, you know, the period, we would expect it to last uh, about three to seven days. So if a period is only lasting for like a day or two, or it's like way too light, Uh, or way too heavy, that gives us information. So we we were talking about fibroids quite a bit. Sometimes heavy, heavy bleeding could be a sign that, okay, maybe she should have an ultrasound just to check out to see if something could be happening, because she's not supposed to be bleeding that much. Um, And then after you have your period, you would expect to kind of approach ovulation. (laughs) And as you approach ovulation, we would expect you to produce cervical mucus. So we would expect you to have about, you know, two to seven days of mucus. We would expect you to actually ovulate. And in a healthy cycle, we would expect that ovulation to take place between days 10 and 23. And you'll notice again, I didn't say day 14 because there is a range of what is considered normal and women are not robots. So we actually, um, and the first half of the cycle, so ovulation is what the most, that that first phase, the pre-ovulatory phase is the most variable phase of the cycle. So if there is going to be some fluctuation in terms of the length of your cycle, it's typically because ovulation happened earlier or later in the cycle, which is helpful to know for a lot of reasons. Um, And then after ovulation, we would expect your luteal phase, so the second half from ovulation to when you get your period again, we would expect that to last uh, on average about 12 to 14 days. So when you have that, and I mean, that probably blow, like when I first discovered that, you know, there's more to my cycle than just my period, Mm -hmm. that kind of mind, right? So. Just by that little you know, snippet of information that I just shared, you can get a sense that like, wow, there's all these different phases of the cycle. Each one of those phases has like a normal parameter. And if you were to look at the cycle in that level of detail, you could actually gather a lot of information. Because if a woman's ovulation is delayed a lot, if she stops ovulating altogether, if she's got a really short luteal phase, if she's not producing any cervical mucus, if her periods are too light or heavy or too short or long, all of those things can point to different specific Issues that we should be aware
0: of. Absolutely, and so I guess this links into. um, I mean, I know that you feel that the pill can mask a lot of symptoms, a lot of conditions, and many of the people that I work with with endometriosis are either on the pill or they've been on the pill at some point to manage endo. Um, So, or many of them don't even get to the point where they get diagnosed with endo because at 13, 12, or, you know, even as young as eight now, girls are starting their periods as young as eight um, in the UK, Um, they're getting put on the pill if their periods are really bad in the beginning, which could be endometriosis. So they could go 10, 20 years straight on the pill and not know what's really going on or be taking it and the pain is still there, but they're kind of, you know, they're like, well, this is just the best this is the best I'm going to get. So what are your thoughts on kind of taking the pill for a condition or just, you know, some painful periods that might not be a condition, but you know, how do you feel about doctors using it in that way? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I feel like as you know, this topic, there's a bit of controversy. And I feel like if you were to say one or the other, like it's totally fine or you should never use it. I feel like um, both of those solutions or both of those responses aren't really realistic. Um, so, I mean, I think what to focus on is that the pill doesn't cure endometriosis. Hmm. It doesn't make it better. The actual condition, what it does is it makes your symptoms more manageable, but the pill is also not without consequence. And I think, like, again, this is it. Like, so, you know, I'm assuming that your listeners are adults. And so we need to have an adult conversation about it, just like we would have an adult conversation about anything else. (laughs) So, when it comes to endometriosis, so um, if you have endometriosis, first of all, it's an inflammatory condition. Um, There's more evidence now uh, linking it to an autoimmune issue. And although there's, you know, there's no known cure for endometriosis, there are a lot of women who have dramatically improved their symptoms. So their painful, um, uh, periods and, and things like that by addressing some of the factors that would lead, that would increase inflammation. So, um, the things that I spoke about when I talked about how I managed to bring my pain down and like the, the key parts of that story were that it was not immediate. It was over a period of time, you know, and it's not easy to kind of swap out all of your care products and all of your cleaning products and like, um, change your diet and, and, you know, focus on different types of foods that are less inflammatory. Those are things that take time with the pill, like you take it and then you have, uh, you know, an immediate, uh, you know, not every woman, the pill doesn't take away the pain for every woman with endo. Um, but for a lot of women, that's what actually allows them to be able to manage. So, um, I would say that the, like the problem in my perspective with relying completely on the pill and, and basically in a scenario where a woman is having these symptoms and using the pill and like, that's it, that's the solution. The problem with that is that the the pill doesn't cure anything. What it does is it, um, you know, the majority of hormonal birth control methods either completely suppress ovulation or interfere with that normal um, communication that happens between your hypothalamus, pituitary and ovaries. So you're basically suppressing it and you're replacing your natural cycle with a fake one. And the bleeding you experience on it isn't your period. It's withdrawal bleeding. Because if unless you actually ovulate, you don't have a period. It's not a true menstrual period. So a lot of women then are under this idea that like you just take the pill and then you get easier periods. But you're not actually getting periods. They could have made the, the pill pack 28 days, uh, 36 days, 100 days. It was arbitrary because you're not actually menstruating. <laughs> um, so if you're not actually treating the problem, then you're not going to make the endo better, if that's what it is. And like you said, many women wouldn't even know, because if you think about your menstrual cycle as a vital sign, I always say like your body doesn't, your body can't talk to you in words. It's not like your ovaries can like talk, like call you and have a conversation. (laughs) So if you have endo you know, meaning that you have like endometrial tissue that is growing in places it's not supposed to be growing and like micro recurrent micro bleeding in different areas of your body that's causing you excessive pain. Um, your body can't talk to you. So that actual pain is your body's way of communicating. And if you just take something that's going to mask the pain, I'm, and let me say this, as, as somebody who experienced horrifyingly painful periods, I'm not saying that you, like I, I used... Ibuprofen. You know, um, I used the pill to to get rid of the pain. So there's no judgment coming no, from me. No, yeah. No one should have that type of pain. So if you have that type of pain, you need to have something to get rid of the pain. So I'm saying this more so from that kind of 50 foot view, not like it's more of the overall a- approach as opposed to like today you have pain, you have to deal with that pain today. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Um, but like uh, that band-aid essentially you still whatever that micro like wherever that endometrial tissue is growing whatever the inflammation whatever the processes in your body that is causing you to pain uh, experience those symptoms it's still there and so for example you know knowing what I know now I know that our diet and lifestyle contributes to this did you know that women who work shift work are significantly more likely to have endometriosis. No. I found this really interesting study. Um, As I was in, in the book, I talk about sleep, and how important it is, and. Uh, um, and also like our natural circadian rhythm. So during the day, we're supposed to produce our cortisol and feel awake and alert. And in the nighttime, when we go to sleep, that's when our melatonin levels are supposed to be the highest. And, um, you know, encouraging good sleep patterns and sleeping in the dark and getting to bed early supports our natural hormone production. And that supports our menstrual cycle. So on and on and on. And so when I was researching for that section, I came across a study where, you know, they did kind of just overall look at women who, you know slept at night versus women who actually worked shift work. And so women who regularly work shift work were the most likely to have endo. Um, and then women who just occasionally, were, uh, did shift work still had a higher risk of it. So what I wow. know now is that endo doesn't just come out of the blue for no reason. Um, you know, random, like, and it's not, we don't, we might not know exactly what causes it, but it's not like we have zero control. So there's a certain percentage of environmental factors and there possibly would be then a certain percentage of genetic susceptibility. But our medical system kind of gives us this idea that like, oh, you have endo and it just happened to you and there's nothing you can do. So taking a pill and then not doing anything else. Like, so if you like, you know, are working shift work and like And you didn't know that that was affecting your hormones and your cycles. And you like eat a really bad diet and super inflammatory foods all the time. And like, you didn't know you had a sensitivity to like, you know, cow's dairy or whatever. And like, like, if you never look at any of those factors, then it's never going to get better. And like, at some point, most women want to come off the pill. Like at some point, you might want to have a baby at some point, you might just get tired of the side effects, the depression, the low libido. We could talk about all of that, Um, but like, (laughs) the pill isn't without consequence. So then you have a woman with, you know, one horrible situation, and then you're going to put her on a a birth control pill that is associated with a ton of other side effects. Like, is it, do we really, are these our choices? Like I have these horrible effects or these other ones? Like, is like, are you, and and that the drug doesn't fix my problem. It's still there. Because remember, whenever I went off the pill, the pain was worse. It came, it, it, it never fixed the pain. Yeah. And I was keenly aware of that.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but I'm here to quickly remind you that BU period patches are our sponsors today and are making this show possible. Um, BU period patches are 100% natural. They are backed by science and essentially look like plasters stick onto your abdomen and back, um, you know, one or the other or both, and deliver eucalyptus and menthol oil to your muscles. And these oils soothe cramps and reduce pain for up to 12 hours. I absolutely love them and I'm not alone. Here's another review from an endometriosis warrior. I've suffered with endometriosis all my life but at 36 things are worsening and the last three months have been tough. I bought your product on a whim, my friend screenshot a picture and sent it, I bought it thinking yeah yeah just another gimmick, how wrong I was. Today is day one of using it, I sat in a training class at work surrounded by managers when the pain kicked in in panic thinking i'm going to end up passing out in 30 minutes as i didn't have any tablets i nipped to the loo and used a patch within 20 minutes the pain was gone it's 40 minutes after the 12 hours and the pain's just started so time for another i'll be shouting from the rooftops to anyone who will hear about your product i'm amazed so just to let you know also all of these reviews i think only a few of them are public most of them are actually dm'd directly to bu so it's not they're not sponsored they're not like you know they're not getting paid to say this they're actually just contacting the company to let them know so this is incredible and when i started taking them when i started using them i didn't know that the endometriosis community was reacting like this so i'm glad i'm not alone and you know other people are experiencing these results as well um so anyway if you'd like to try them they come in a pack of five they're $6.99 for a pack like just one of pack or 4 if you go for a subscription to shop just head to the link in my show notes and start soothing period cramps the natural way this episode is also supported by the gluten-free baking academy by Heather Crosby who was a guest in oh I think the first season of the podcast um Heather has interstitial cystitis and changed her diet in order to manage it and um, went gluten-free and now has launched the Gluten-Free Baking Academy amongst also being the founder of Yum Universe and author of the Yum Universe cookbooks. The Gluten-Free Baking Academy is a four-week online program where you get to learn how to make bagels, sourdough, English muffins, Burger buns, flatbreads, all the good things that we miss when we are living gluten free. The four week program contains videos and tutorials. You get to understand the science behind gluten free baking and actually what makes gluten free baking good and how to bake well when you're using gluten free ingredients. Um, You only have to have two hours a week. You get loads of bonuses including cinnamon rolls. Hell yes. All the um, recipes are also vegan. They're made without any um, gums or processed flours and starches. Uh, Enrollment is open and classes start March 11th. So head to the link in the show notes to get a free tour and sign up. So... That would be really interesting to get into the side effects of things because I don't take the pill and I haven't done for, gosh, I can't even think how long it might, I don't know, five, seven years maybe. Um, But I was kind of on and off different pills because um, one I couldn't take um, due to like a higher risk of stroke or something. And then the ones that they then gave me afterwards, I had really adverse effects too, so... Um, I can't remember how many I had, maybe two or three, but they all gave me really, really severe depression. And then one, I had like a sudden, even though many doctors will say, oh, it doesn't do this, but then I've read up that it does. I had really sudden get, weight gain on with one of them as well, but it was mainly the, um, the depression was so, so like severe and sudden um, that it just wasn't, it wasn't worth risking my mental health for. Um, and I wasn't I wasn't taking the pill to manage endo either. But I feel like there are a lot of myths out there about the side effects of the pill, and I feel like a lot of doctors will say, No, that's not true, and others will say, Yes, this is I've literally heard conflicting things. So for people who have just kind of been on the pill since they were like a teenager and they haven't really asked any questions or been told much about it, could you go through The side effects and also any impact that it might have on fertility because I don't really talk about fertility on the podcast so I think for anyone who is wanting to have a baby it could be helpful for them to hear or even just put their worries at you know at ease if there aren't any, if there isn't an the impact, but it'd just be good to hear what you have to say about that. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, no, I have a, I have a lot to say about that. I <laughs> wrote two, two whole chapters on the pill um, and filled it with some really interesting research. I think the first thing I should say is I always like to clarify my message about the pill because um, like, for example, there are women who have such severe endo that their pain is completely unbearable. And the pill is the only thing that's really giving them a, a bit of a relief from that. And so um, to kind of just close out what I was saying before, um, If the pill, my issue is like if the pill is the only solution, then you're not addressing any of the underlying factors. But for some women, the pill might give some temporary relief while they work on some of those lifestyle factors, while they seek out a functional practitioner to reduce that inflammation and to really try to figure out like, do you have any food sensitive? Like what is it that's contributing the most to this inflammatory condition in your case? What can we actually do to improve it? And you can actually spend, dedicate some time devoted to improving some of those things and figuring out what the underlying factors could be to get you to the point that you could eventually come off of it and really reduce the pain. Um, so for me, it's it's really the message I, I just want to make clear is not that like this isn't about the pill. This is about you being healthy and, and you being able to have a period without going into dire pain. And the other thing I should mention is that there are women with endo that don't have any pain because of where the lesions are. Um, are growing, and so there are women with endo who have no idea. And for some women, it's only when they try to get pregnant and you know it's not happening and whatever that they kind of discover they have endo, even though they don't have pain. So, the you know, don't want to have that stereotype that all women with endo have extreme pain because some women do not.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's no, very true. Um, so, you know,
1: going back to the hormonal birth control, so I mean, the um, the, one of the most common side effects of hormonal birth control is, uh, you know, depression and low libido. And there's a couple different reasons for that. Um, one of the interesting things though, is that when you speak to a lot of women, some women will adamantly like passionately tell you that they didn't experience any side effects on the pill and they loved it and it was the most freeing thing and it was amazing. And so I think um, it's important just to acknowledge that not everyone, not every woman's experience on the pill is going to be the same. Um, but with that said, what I wanted to highlight uh, when I talk about the pill in the book and right now is that there are certain physiological changes that all women experience while on it. So to think that only some women experience side effects, I mean, I would say, are there really side effects or just effects? Um, so how does the pill work? I mentioned already that one of, the main, um, one of the main functions of the pill is to suppress ovulation. So not every single type of hormonal birth control completely suppresses ovulation, but um, like for instance, like the combined uh, contraceptives, the ones that contain synthetic estrogens and progestins, they uh, typically suppress ovulation you <laughs> And so when you suppress ovulation, you're suppressing ovarian function. Your ovaries are what produce your natural estrogens and progesterone, which are different to the synthetic hormones in the pill. And those hormones have effects that extend outside of your uterus. Like imagine that, um, that extend throughout your whole body. And so when you um, suppress your natural production of these hormones, uh, you're changing a lot more than whether or not you can have a baby. And that's why the message of like your menstrual cycle is a vital sign is so important because A lot of women don't realize like we somehow think that we can just shut off our ovaries and it's going to just, you know, everything's going to be business as usual, even though we know that when we castrate men, it changes their personality. Really? (laughs) I didn't know this. Well, you know, sex offenders, that whole conversation about castrating them and to make them less aggressive and stuff, because it lowers their testosterone and, you know, that whole thing. Um, So there's some, there's a greater degree of understanding that when we mess with like men's hormones, that it's going to change their behavior. Like we have that association of like testosterone with sexuality and aggression and whatever. So if we lower it, then they might be more docile, but like we don't, and I'm not saying that as a fact, I'm just saying generally we have that sense as a culture. Um, But with women, we just you know, shutting down a woman's ovaries, we don't think it would have an effect on on anything. So, you know, first of all, um, the pill lowers our testosterone levels by over 50%. So when you're on the pill, your testosterone is significantly lower. And it's lowered in a couple of ways. So I mentioned that, you know, we're shutting down ovarian function. So, um, you know, a certain degree of our testosterone is produced by our ovaries and so by shutting down ovarian production it really significantly reduces how much we produce. Now, as women we only, we produce about, you know, 10% uh, as much uh, testosterone as men, but that testosterone that we produce is directly linked to our libido and our sexual response and function and even our sexual organs because our vulva and the tissues around our vulva our vaginal opening our clitoris are highly sensitive to these hormones. Right, okay. Um so then lower testosterone is associated with an increased rate of depression, but depression specifically, um, one of the Lovely side effects of the pill is that it uh, it depletes certain nutrients, and so um, B vitamins in particular, so folate, B12, and B6. Now the pill increases your daily requirement of B6 by like 4,000 <laughs> percent. Whoa! By like uh, so, um, like you would need to take about 20 to 38 times the recommended daily allowance of vitamin B6 to. Make up for the deficit. And vitamin B6 is associated with our tryptophan metabolism, which is associated with our serotonin production. And so that means that for some women, going on the pill, being that it rapidly depletes this B6 and it interferes with our production of serotonin, which is then associated with our overall mood. um, There's like the reason I'm going into the specifics is because there's specific data in the literature and like a specific function like a direct link between how the pill affects these uh neuro like this neurotransmitter that is directly affected with our mood um, there's a specific link between the pill and increasing your chances of experiencing depressive symptoms for on these two fronts already and we like we've
0: just started talking yeah, this is, <laughs> yeah. my, my so brain in- is blown <laughs>
1: And well, and so some women respond differently to others. So some women, like in your case, go on the pill and immediately have this, like, oh my gosh, like anxiety, depression out the, like, there's some women that have that right away, but there's others who do not. And there's some women, so nutrient depletion, um, it, it's a gradual process. So, for instance, like the longer, The research shows that the longer that women are on the pill, um, like the folate depletion kind of gradually builds and builds and builds and like all of that. So for some women, they can be on the pill for like two years, five years, eight years, and then they start having panic attacks like eight years in. They just think they're going nuts because they've been on the pill for eight years. They never had any of these symptoms, so they're not even linking it like no link there's until they start losing their minds. And like, um, I say that with love, but until they really start feeling like they're crazy and then they start kind of Googling, 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 and eventually kind of find other women who've had those uh, symptoms and then link it to the pill. Cause no one's really telling them like out of the gate that these symptoms could be associated. Like if you start feeling depression, anxiety, and, um, in particular, whether it's now or a couple of years in, you should know that the pill could be um, associated with that. So if you're, if, if you're starting to feel this way and you're not sure why you might want to just experiment with um, coming off the pill for a while to see, I feel like that's a reasonable thing to say to a woman. <laughs> um, because my thing isn't like, I don't think no one should ever use the pill. Like that's not really my stance, but my thing is that we should be fully informed about what the side effects are because there are a number of women who experience these side effects, but they really don't know that it could be related. So they end up, it could take them years to make that connection. And those are years of having to experience these side effects where they could have just done a trial run, gone off the pill for a couple of months just to see if they felt better. Um, So in addition, I'll just, you know, I could go on for days. So at some point I will stop talking about the um, side effects, but in addition to that um, I talked about the lower testosterone. So um, and how part of it is due to kind of reducing how much testosterone your ovaries are putting out, but in addition to that, um, when you're on the pill, it increases the um, your production of this um, this protein called sex hormone binding globulin (SHBG). So it increases your production of this um, protein significantly by like. I believe it's like 200% or more. And so um, the analogy I use for it is like, imagine that your testosterone are like iron filings and the SHBG is a magnet. (laughs) SHBG binds to your testosterone. And in order for testosterone to like do anything in your body, it has to be kind of free and unbound so that your cells can actually use it. So by having the pill increase this protein, it really takes a lot of your testosterone off the market. And um, so, you know, quite literally, like the pill raises this protein, the protein like you know the picture the the iron um filings and the magnet, like it kind of takes all of this free testosterone out of circulation and then you just have less to to deal with and um what the research shows us is that even after you come off the pill um the the level goes down a little bit, but it takes years anywhere from you know one to five or more years before your levels go back to normal. There was one study I found with
0: oh my gosh. <laughs> That's ten years crazy. later.
1: Um, ten years later, um, the the women off the pill, their levels were kind of starting to to normalize at that stage. So there's just there's a lot of stuff. And I'll just mention um the low libido and the painful sex. So having lower testosterone then is associated with low libido. And there is this running joke about um hormonal birth control that one of the reasons it's effective is because you don't have sex anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I can relate Um, to that. (laughs) It's not like funny, but it's, but I mean, think about it. It's so well like common that there's even a joke about it.
0: Mm. Um, So the
1: testosterone thing is a big thing. But um, what's really interesting is that um, because your vulvar tissues, so your clitoris, your vaginal opening, your labia, like because these tissues are so sensitive to our hormones, to testosterone, when you end up having um, like 50 percent or more or less testosterone um, in your body, it can actually cause the tissues to shrink and to become um, more sensitive. So women who use hormonal birth control are more likely to experience pain with sex. And, you know, you mentioned how, like, okay, what if you have a girl who goes on the pill when she's really young and she's been on it since she was 16? I would argue that when you're 16, you're not really fully into, like, you don't really know who you are yet. So didn't really know what your full libido should have ever been. And so there are women out there who, um, like might think that they're just not that sexual or might even think that they're just not that, like, I'm just kind of a sad person. Like, it's very tragic if you think about that way. Um, and just, and also have experienced pain with sex. So some women experience like vulvodynia because the, since the pills associated with a reduction um, in your testosterone, and your tissues are so sensitive to it. Um, there's studies that have been done where they actually measure the thickness of your tissue uh, around the vaginal opening and also the size of your clitoris. So there's a couple of studies that have been done where there was one study in particular that stands out because um, they exposed the participants to hormonal birth control for a couple of months. And then at the end, they measured the clitoral volume to see if there was a change. And all of the participants a- experienced a reduction in clitoral volume so let me say that another way. The pill shrunk all of their clits. Wow. And the average size, like the average reduction was 20%. And then so, so like again, this is ridiculous because this is like this isn't me making this up. It's right there in the research. Um, and we know the the we know why, because it's this reduction in the hormones. So, like with all of this information, again, as women, don't we at least have the right to know that these effects are associated with.
0: Absolutely. Imagine, imagine if there was a medication that they were given to men that shrunk their penises and they didn't tell them. <laughs> like what?
1: On average, an average of 20%,
0: right? I, I mean, this really it's really interesting that you bring this up today because um I wrote an article for the Huffington Post yesterday. They asked me to write a piece about sex. Um and it was kind of a reflection piece on kind of my whole sexual experience um and you know I was kind of even though I've managed to like feel more empowered and I've reduced the amount of pain that I have with endo to like you know almost zero that there's this kind of issue that I feel I'm really disconnected to my sexuality and my libido is kind of like you know on the floor and I've kind of put this down to the fact that I've had pain over the years sex with pain and I've like you know cut off from that part of myself but now I'm wondering how much is this linked to the pill because I wasn't you know I, I started having sex at quite a late age and then I went on the pill pretty much like straight away when I started having sex so I don't know what my libido would have been like without it. And I haven't been on it for five years, but if you're saying that it could, you know, there was a study where they, what it was 10 years before the testosterone kind of recovered. Well, these
1: were, the study was um, in women with PCOS. And so they measured their SHBG levels um, kind of like for the period of time after. And what made that um, study interesting was that they tested for so long. So, um I don't want to send the message that it's like permanent. So many women experience like that their libido starts to come back quite soon after they come off. Um but I think the the scary part about it is that yes, the SHBG remained elevated. So the statistical significance wore off after year 5, meaning that <laughs> with like after 5 years like it was still high uh, statistically In a statistically significant way, and then if you look at the raw data for the next five years, it was still a little bit higher, but it's not like so much higher that you could actually make a scientific conclusion about it.
0: Right.
1: Okay. So more so, I'm I'm sharing that because um, like we often think, okay, like I'm just going to take it and then I'm going to go off it. Everything's going to be like totally great right away. But for some women, it actually takes a bit of time for their libido to kind of bounce back, and I think that's helpful to know.
0: Yeah, completely because so many of us especially if you've already got complications around sex which many of us do um it's so easy to blame ourselves and try and think that there's something wrong, you know wrong with us. Um,
1: Well, that's exactly the reason that I think it's so important to talk about it. I know that the like the pill isn't responsible for everybody's kind of sexual issues with regards to libido and um, pain. But at the same time, I've um, kind of paid attention to see like there's a lot of there's a lot of people talking out about pain with sex these days. And it's often in this emotional sense. Um, You know, women, there's a, a large percentage of women that have experienced sexual trauma, as we know. And I think we're so quick to jump to this. It must be this emotional thing. And so there's like, I just want to be in the background being like, hey, did you ask her if she was on birth control? Like, <laughs> because it's not always an emotional issue. Like it doesn't always have to be like this deep embedded trauma. Like sometimes it's literally that you took a birth control pill. Your tissues happen to be quite sensitive to the drop in testosterone and you experience painful sex as a result. Like sometimes it's literally just that. That's it. Sometimes it's not like your past trauma.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's all I want to say. Oh my gosh, I'm so like... <laughs> I'm so grateful that you're doing this work and I feel like we could talk about it for ages but um I yeah I know we need to wrap up soon so it would be really good to talk about I, I mean I've just shared on Instagram um with my followers that I'm talking to you and you know asking what they want to know and what has been asked is the same as what I get um, in my inbox is that, you know, I want to come off the pill for whatever reason. Some people may want to stay on it, but I often get asked, you know, I want to come off, but I'm scared. Um, I'm scared about my symptoms coming back. I'm scared about the transition. Like, how do I do it? What do I do? Um, so it'd be really good to hear your thoughts on that. Like if there are people who would like to come off it, like, is there a way to do it in a, in is there a way to tr- transition smoothly? Because I, a lot of people talk about having kind of like odd reactions mm-hmm. to coming off the pill.
1: I mean, I think that um, there's, a, there's a few specific things to address when a woman wants to come off the pill in my case, it's fortunate that I'm a fertility awareness educator because I think that it's kind of irresponsible for people to be like, everyone should come off the pill because the pill sucks. And then like not address the birth control question. <laughs> as long as you're ovulating, like when you come off the pill, you know, eventually your cycles come back. Eventually you start ovulating again and having periods. So as long as you're ovulating, there's always a chance in that cycle. If, the, if an egg drops, then there's a chance of a pregnancy. Um, so, you know, for a lot of women, they're scared because again, of this Misinformation that we're given about our bodies. So, a lot of women are like in junior high. I was taught that I could get pregnant on every day of my cycle and there was no safe days. So, I was convinced that if I ever had sex, ever, I would get pregnant, like for sure, 100% pregnant. So pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) So pregnant. So, I was like, Terrified 100% of the time, and that's why learning about fertility awareness was like this life-changing thing. Because oh my god, I don't have to be scared all the time. I can actually figure this out. Like all of a sudden, I wasn't. I wasn't scared. My body was just my body. My fertility was my fertility. I knew about it. You know, it's like hi fertility, nice to meet you. Like, I understand you now. I'm not afraid of you. I can just live my life and like understand my body and be much more comfortable with it. So the first step I think is acknowledging that like, okay, how are you going to manage your fertility? It's normal to feel scared. It's normal to think that you're going to come off the pill on Tuesday and literally be like nine months pregnant on Wednesday. Like, I know it sounds ridiculous to say, but anyone who's listening, who's in that situation of being terrified to come off the pill, totally understands what I'm saying. Um. So first of all, having a strategy of how you're going to manage it, you know, like if you've been on birth control for a long time and you haven't had to negotiate with your partner about using condoms or like having like just negotiating that at all, you know, or using withdrawal or just something, if you've never had to modify your sexual behavior um, because you've always used something, then that's a huge, it's it's terrifying, um, the thought of having to kind of change something that you're so used to doing one way. Um, so I would say, like, have a conversation with yourself about that. Look into the fertility awareness method, not because you necessarily have to use it, but if you gain a, an understanding of your body and how your fertility works and what what your body does when you're fertile, uh, I feel like that can help you to feel a little bit more comfortable because then at least you know, like, you're not just fertile all the time. Um Uh, And then yeah, so that would be the first thing in terms of the pain and managing like the post-pill symptoms. So the pill does suppress your endocrine system. So we, you know, all we have all these conversations now about endocrine disruptors and oh my goodness, there's pesticides in my food, but the the pill is the atomic bomb of xenoestrogens (laughs) because it's specifically designed to like stop your endocrine system from working normally and if it didn't do that it wouldn't work so it's literally like part of the design like when they spray pesticides on food it's not like they designed it to stop your you from ovulating (laughs) (laughs) right like so I think it's it's important to know that so what that means is that you've been living in kind of like a chemically altered state and so for some women when they come off of it like it's 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 like if you had a car in your garage for 20 years or 10 years or five years or two years and you've never started it and then you start it again. Well, it's probably going to sputter and be a little bit weird for a while. So um, you kind of have to keep in mind some women come off the pill and they have like their hormones are trying to sort themselves out. So they have a couple of months where it's like it's not good. They feel all kinds of emotions, really depressed, just all kinds of things going on while their hormones level out. And so knowing that can be helpful because then... If you know that it's temporary and it's kind of like a rebound stage, not all women have a negative experience coming off, but some women do. And um, having being that your hormones are all of a sudden coming back again, your testosterone is coming back again, like your estrogen, your progesterone. Um, some women have post-pill acne, um, you know, because their hormones are like it's almost like you're a new puberty. Like welcome back to puberty. <laughs> <laughs> we missed you, right? Um, so if you kind of know that, then you can kind of mentally prep yourself so that you can anticipate like this is actually when you come off the pill or any other hormonal birth control, your body goes through a period of transition. And it makes logical sense that if you suppress a function of your body for a long time, that when you stop suppressing it, it's going to need a minute to kind of organize itself. Yeah. yeah. In, now, in terms of like the pain for women with endo who went on it because it was ho- so horrible, it, it it's not necessarily the best idea to just like rip off the bandaid, just like, okay, I'm just going to come off it tomorrow. Sometimes if, if your pain was really extreme, um, it, it would be a good opportunity, kind of like what I was saying earlier about um, the pill not fixing anything and how you could kind of have a, a like a two-part strategy where, okay, we're managing the, the pain in the present, but we're also addressing the lifestyle factors and trying to figure out what, what actually was at the root of it and what is in my control that I could do to improve that. Um, Um, So for women where it was like horrible, really, really bad, it might be a good opportunity for you to go to a functional practitioner who specializes in fertility, specifically endometriosis, you know, like women's inflammatory conditions, et cetera, who can really support you to adjust your diet and your lifestyle factors and really address any underlying issues that are making it worse. And you could have a specific period, like a two to three month period of doing this actively, cleaning up your, you know, stuff. And- to be honest, any woman who's listening knows already three things that she can be cleaning up tomorrow. So women are really smart. Like we ought, we typically do know what our vices are and what some of the areas we could be improving. We just are kind of like, you know, it's hard to make changes. So if, if for a woman who's really, really concerned, who had really, really hard periods that really had a negative um, experience, that would be my best suggestion. I mean, don't wait until you come off the pill to start addressing it, um, start addressing it before know that the pill is associated with specific nutrient deficiencies. So for example, the pill is known, like we talked about B vitamins, like B12, folate, uh, B6, the pill is also associated with, um, depleting your zinc. And there's a supposed to be a balance in your body between zinc and copper. So when women are on um, birth control, they're more likely to have lower zinc cause it depletes zinc and then higher copper. So kind of sets off these balances. Um, as well as magnesium, selenium, coenzyme Q10. Um, The list just really goes on. So if if you're aware of the specific nutrients that uh, the pill is depleting, then really making a point of like taking a multivitamin, like starting to actually um, boost and restore some of uh, those nutrient deficiencies while you're still on it. So that at least this is how you can make the transition a little bit less abrupt. Um, like it is possible. You may still experience some symptoms because I mean, you are in a transition period, but you can certainly do your best to mitigate that.
0: That's so helpful. Thank you so much. And final question. Um, So I don't, for for anyone who kind of does want to stay on the pill, um, I don't want to like leave them kind of, you know, worried. I know that you've said multiple times that you don't, it's not about being anti-pill. So I'm gathering from what you've said that um it's about kind of knowing the facts so having an understanding um of the side effects and then like looking after your body in terms of like supplements or whatever may be depleted just trying to have awareness of that and look after your body is there any other tips that you would offer for anyone who does want to stay on the pill but wants to do so um kind of in the best way possible, in the healthiest way possible?
1: Well, I would say, first of all, know that you're taking an endocrine disrupting hormone. So know that it's not a vitamin, like (laughs) it's not without consequence. And familiarize yourself with some of the most common side effects, because um, it's easy to really dismiss these things and especially because this is something that women take long term. I mean we get used to whatever situation that we're in. Um so I think it's really important just to 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 really take some time to focus on the side effects. So I go through the side effects in great detail with tons of scientific references, like in two whole chapters and it's like a lot of pages of information. And it's not to um, it's really, it's not to be anti anything. It's to actually provide you with what the research has to say about it. And the reason why that's important is because I know that like, I, I just, I believe that, you know, women fall into three categories. Like some women are going to learn about this, you know, all of these side effects and they're going to say, that's not for me. I'm never going to take it. There's some women who are going to learn about all these side effects and they're going to say, you know what? Um, I'm really happy that I know about these effects. So I'm going to take it for a period of time and I'm going to be real cognizant and like check in with myself to see if I'm experiencing any of those things. But for me, this is, the right option for now. And then there's another group of women who's going to take it for just as long. And so wherever you fall is completely okay. I just want you to have that knowledge of what's happening so that you're not part of the um, group of women who may start experiencing depression or low libido or painful sex or, um, you know, any of the different things that we talked about. And you just had no idea that it could be related. I want you to know that it could be related so that you have the option, if ever, to switch to a different method. Some women don't do good with estrogen, um, like synthetic estrogens and hormones. So for some women, they might choose a progestin only option. They might choose the IUD that's only progest- uh, like the synthetic progestins instead. Um, some women don't do good with the IUD and they might choose a different option. Um, so I think also just having that sense and under like that kind of sense of like, okay, there's different options. Um, don't be swayed by the low dose comment. It has to be high enough to interfere with your ability to get pregnant. So all of the things that are said are, are very interesting word choices, but I would say for a woman who is, um, you know, on the pill, just, be aware of the different um, effects, so that if you ever experienced one of those effects, you would have the option to come off of it if you needed to, even if just for a month or two, just to test it out. Um, take time to support your body. Recognize that the pill, you know, is associated with a number of nutrient deficiencies. And although supplementation, taking a multivitamin, and taking a B complex does not, um, it doesn't fully restore everything to normal. At least then you're kind of uh, like you're sort of addressing it. Like you're not just completely in. Um, deficit. Like you're kind of addressing some of that. And then also, I think the most important thing to know is that the pill and other hormonal birth control, they are associated with a temporary delay in the return of your normal fertility. There is a very real transition period that your body goes through when you come off of it. It doesn't mean that women can't get pregnant right off of it because we all know that that happens. But even if you were to get pregnant right away, like given the nutrient deficiencies that are associated with (laughs) the pill, it's not ideal anyways. Like if you want to have a baby, you want to give your baby the best possible um, start in life. So I would say that, you know keep that in mind. And when you're coming off, don't come off right when you want to get pregnant, come off of it a year or two before you want to get pregnant to give your body time. And to uh, like, you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe the endo comes back with a vengeance and it's like, like, you need time to sort it out. Maybe your periods don't come back right away and it takes more longer than you thought. Like giving yourself a window is helpful just it's like insurance, like you hope for the best, but you plan for the worst so that if anything were to happen, you would at least give yourself the time to sort it out and to get your cycles healthy and robust and normal before you're ready to, before you're wanting to have a baby, if that's something you want to do.
0: Thank you so much, Lisa. You are literally a fountain of knowledge. (laughs) I'm just like blown away by everything you said. Um, That was so helpful. I'm sure people are going to love this episode. Before you um, head off, can you let us know Um, where and when we can get your book
1: yeah thank you so much so the book is the fifth vital sign master your cycles and optimize your fertility um by the time this episode comes out it will be available in your favorite online retailers like amazon um and it'll be available in like a paperback version ebook and at some point audio but i'm i'm diligently working to get that done at the moment (laughs) um and also for the listeners you can actually get the first chapter of the book for free if you go to the fifth vital sign book Dot com um, so yeah the fifth and you can actually get the first chapter um, for free as my gift to you so um, everything we talked about is in there. Um, I, I spent a lot of time writing this book um, it, it kind of came about from years of interviewing amazing guests, um, years of working with women and years in the field of fertility awareness. And um, the goal is just to really give you that ability to make those informed choices.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much. And I will make sure I'll put that link, I will put that link in the show notes so people can get that free chapter. Thank you so much, Lisa. And um, yeah, good luck with your book.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye.
0: So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um you can head to my instagram page which is this underscore endolife um, you can head to my website which is www.thisendolife.com. and you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website um, I've put the link in my show notes it's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis this episode was produced by the pod farm whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started visit the podfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world thank you for being here and i will speak to you soon